Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Second Timothy <clears throat> and the last chapter. We have uh, come to the end of the series on Second Timothy. Uh, and what I was hoping to do today was to take a very brief look uh, at the last, uh, the closing verses, uh, and then do a kind of summary. Uh, but when I started writing, it kind of morphed into something else. So plans, as they tend to do, changed. Uh, so we'll have a, a kind of summary look at it maybe tonight, uh, and then we're just going to look at uh, these last verses uh, in Second Timothy this morning. Um, so let's pray together before we look at it. <clears throat> Father, as we come again to look upon your word, we ask once more that our eyes might be opened to see you as you really are, that our ears might be opened that we may hear the message of your truth, and that our hearts may be opened, that as we receive that message we would believe it, and not only be hearers of it but doers also. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so please uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 9, and let's read this together. Uh, these are Paul's last, the last recorded words we actually have of the Apostle. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to, to, to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is very helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tassiacus to uh, Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Prudence, Lindus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, if you knew that it was your last year or your last six months, what would it mean for you? Would you do things differently if it had not been your last month? What would your priorities be? What would you see as the main things you wanted to do before you left this life? Now, it sounds a particularly somber question, but I'm pretty sure that that's probably what Paul, was, or Paul had in his mind as he was in prison in Rome when he was writing this letter 
to young Timothy, his friend. Paul knew that he was coming to the end of his race. We've seen that last week. He had used this letter to Timothy to call him and the church at Ephesus back to faithfulness to the gospel and back to to faithfulness to the apostle himself and the message he preached. Timothy was to be faithful to Paul. Not only in what Paul had given him in terms of the apostolic message, but also his whole method of ministry as well. As he'd gone with Paul throughout his life, as he'd been with Paul preaching, as he'd planted churches, as he'd gone on missions, he'd looked at Paul's life. He'd looked at the way he did things. And Paul now, at the end of his life, is concerned. He's concerned that Timothy keeps going in the faith. He keeps preaching the gospel. And as we reach these final sections of the letter, we find Paul giving his final instructions to Timothy and his final greetings to the church. It's these verses we want to look at this morning. We get to try and get a sense of what Paul is doing here as he gives these instructions. So the first thing I want to ask is, is the question, why should Timothy leave Ephesus? What possible reason could Paul have, after all that he said, for getting Timothy to leave Ephesus? After calling him to faithfulness in his ministry, after giving him a method of ministry, after talking about specific things in Ephesus, why does he leave Ephesus and head for Rome? Well, the first and obvious reason is Paul wants to see Timothy. He wants to see him before he dies. You can't read this letter without hearing the affection that Paul has for his young co-worker in the gospel. There is obviously a very close friendship between the two men. Paul wants to see the young man before he dies. We can think, of course, in chapter 1 of Timothy's famous tears. After all the time that the two men have spent together... Working for the glory of Jesus Christ, they have a very unique friendship. And it's only natural, I guess, that that Paul would want to see Timothy before he goes to be with his Lord. And I guess when you think about it in those terms, you just see how utterly personal this letter actually is. Paul is incredibly worried about this young man. He cares a lot for him. But it seems to me there's more than simply that involved here in these last verses. For in verse 10, we see that Paul himself has experienced some of the disappointments that go with gospel ministry. Demas has deserted him. Demas has got mixed up in his affections and loved the world rather than loving God. The cost was too much for him. And now he has left Paul. Take it into the account uh, what Paul has said in chapter 3 about, about wrong affections. You can see just how serious this actually is. Demas, we know, is mentioned in uh, Colossians 4.14 and in uh, Philemon uh, verse 24. And he is described there as a fellow worker of Paul. Here was someone who had been part of Paul's inner circle. Who had traveled and worked with Paul. And now we find that he has literally 
fallen in love with this present age. That's what Paul says. You can see the contrast here between Timothy, who was called not to be ashamed of Christ, and Demas, who has now deserted the apostle. The cost was too much. Crescens, who we know nothing about other than what uh, it says here, has also gone off to Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey area, probably on a missionary errand for Paul. Titus, uh, who must have finished his work in Crete, if you look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul had left him there on the island of Crete to finish the work that Paul had started and appoint elders in every town. Titus has set off for Dalmatia, That is the modern-day area of Bosnia, Croatia. Obviously, again, more work to be done. Paul only now has Luke with him, Dr. Luke. Indeed, as we look at what Paul said in, in chapter 1, verse 15, we can see that Paul, his list of fellow workers is beginning to grow quite thin with the desertions that happened in, in Asia, chapter 1, verse 15, and now Demas going off the rails, Titus away, other people away, only Luke is with him. All the rest are going for some other reason. Paul is finding it difficult. He needs a friend. He's in prison. He's cold. He's hungry. He's most likely finding it very difficult to cope with all the different pressures that is on him. His trial is still going on. And he could do with a few more helpers and workers about But I think the key to really understanding what is going on here is what Paul asks for. If you look at verses 12 and 13, Paul is not looking Timothy to come just for a goodbye party in his prison cell, still less to have a good yap and complain about his imprisonment and all the woes that he is enduring. Paul is interested, as he always is, in the future of the gospel. Throughout this letter, we have seen Paul very deliberately passing on the gospel baton to Timothy, his fellow worker, challenging him to take it and run, to take it and preach, to take it and guard it, to take it and hand it on. Now he wants Timothy and Mark to come to Rome. Remember, this this is the same Mark who caused the rift between Paul and Barnabas, Acts chapter 15. Paul didn't want to take Mark with him because Mark had deserted in the past and he had failed to carry out the work. Paul didn't think it was a good idea. Barnabas did. There was a big rift. Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. And now it appears that that rift has been healed. Well, look what he says. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. You see, Mark has went from being useless for the gospel in Paul's estimate to being useful. And the translation of the NIV here is slightly misleading. It's not useful in my ministry. It is simply useful in ministry. Paul wants to gather Timothy, his trusted co-worker, along with Mark, and together with Luke for ministry in Rome. You see, Paul always has his eyes on the future and what will happen after he leaves. And I think, although we can't be sure of it, that this team he is gathering, this team of co-workers, is there to think about the future of the gospel, to help him 
in the remaining part of his life as he's stuck in prison to make sure the gospel continues to be preached, to make sure it continues to go out, to make sure churches are continued to be planted. And when you think about the life of the apostle, as you read his letters, as you think about all the things, the different things he says, that sounds very like him, doesn't it? The man who could say in chapter 2 of this letter, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The person who could say that, surely this is what he's thinking about. Paul's motivation, his reason for being, was to see the gospel go out. And now he gathers a team of trusted co-workers with him. There has been, if you read the commentaries, there's a lot of speculation about what this little team actually is going to be about. Um, If you think about it, if you think about the people who are actually in this team that he's bringing together, Mark is the author of what we know of the first gospel, that is the gospel of Mark, the first one that was written. And that gospel was based, we know, on the preaching of Peter. We know that Mark, uh, he, he used Peter's preaching as a source, but Luke also of course, the author of Luke's Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Luke also used Mark as a source for his Gospel. And we also know that Luke spent a lot of time with Paul, both on missionary journeys and obviously here in his imprisonment. And as did Timothy spend a lot of time with Paul during his ministry and imprisonments. But when you bring all these things together... And then you add in Paul's letters, and we could say you add in Peter's letters, we say Mark's there, you have 20 out of 27 books of the New Testament. And what's more, Timothy is to bring Paul's cloak and his scrolls, especially the parchments, those are the specific things he asks for. What are these documents? We'll never know for sure. But could they be? if they're this important, records of Paul's correspondence? The scrolls, could that be his copy of the Old Testament? Maybe even parchments that contain sayings of Jesus. We know that there were such things in the early times, early church, or a very early account of the life of Jesus. Why would he need a cloak? The cloak described here would have been a kind of round piece of cloth, very heavy cloth, with a hole in the middle of it that you put your head through. Uh, it was for it was winter Mediterranean winter wear. Uh, Paul, being in a very damp, cold prison cell, being totally dependent on other people to give him food and water and clothing, he needed it. He needed the cloak because of what he says in verse twenty-one. Winter was approaching; it was going to get really, really cold. And if he was to continue doing his work, he needed something to keep him warm. It's very practical. It sounds unspiritual, but it's necessary. You see, it all seems like Paul is bringing these people and these resources together before he dies for a reason. And in true Paul style, I'm pretty sure that it's the future he has in mind. And as these co-workers come together in Rome, he is making plans to make sure that the gospel continues to go out to the nations, to other areas that yet have no churches planted in them. Paul even sends... uh, Tychicus to Ephesus to replace Timothy. 
Tychicus was, of course, another veteran worker that Paul had known for a very long time. He was with Paul when he'd given his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. It all seems to fit together to highlight the fact that Paul wants Timothy, Mark, and Luke to help him continue with the work of the gospel right up to the point of his coming death. And, of course, Paul probably also needed character witnesses for his trial. Timothy would have been a vital witness that Paul could call to his defense. When others would not stand with him in his first defense, chapter 16, perhaps Timothy could. Why else would he be calling him not to be ashamed of, uh, in, in, uh, verse, in chapter 1, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But if you look at then at verses 16 through 18, you find even more evidence here because even when Paul is making his defense, which must have been a kind of preliminary hearing before his actual trial, he views it not in terms of his own vindication of whatever the alleged crime was, we don't know for sure, but he viewed it in terms of preaching the gospel. Notice what he says. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Even as he's making his defense and all his character witnesses have abandoned him, he was not interested in anything else other than the message of the gospel might be preached to the Gentiles. Indeed, the trial that Paul was awaiting could have been before the very emperor himself. Or at the very least, some very senior persons in the Roman Empire of the time. So that would truly have been the very heart of the Gentile world that Paul would have been preaching and testifying to Jesus Christ in. You see, it seems to me anyway, as you, as you read this, you find that Paul is so sold out for the cause of the gospel that even on his own trial, even when he is on trial for his life literally, he is more interested in making sure that the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. His entire vision and life have been shaped by it. And now, even in his final days, he is still working for his Savior. Timothy could have learned, I'm sure did learn, a whole lot from Paul. And surely we can as well. Prison's not a thing that we generally have to fear in this nation. But how many of us, if we actually were in prison for Christ, would be doing what Paul was doing? How many of us would be more concerned with our own hardships and troubles? We forget about what the mission of the church really is. How often we moan and complain about the little trivial matters in our lives and forget what really matters, what lasts into eternity. You see, Demas and the false teacher had loved their world, loved this world, loved this present age. Their treasure was in success, in power, in popularity. But Paul demonstrates what it means to have your treasure in heaven. He has nothing, absolutely nothing. He has no one to defend him. He is totally reliant on other people to get him food and clothing. And what is he concerned about? He's concerned about ministry, about getting the gospel out. Making sure that that message of the cross is made known. No matter what God would bring him through, he never lost his confidence in the goodness and the presence of his Savior. 
Even when he was lonely, alone at his defense, preaching the gospel at his trial, he was even there. Sold out for the gospel and assured of the presence of God by his side. Others had deserted him. God never would. God stood by him, helped him in that fearful situation to remain faithful to the gospel of grace. And indeed, it's not just the assurance of God's presence that Paul has, if you notice what he says, but also the assurance, the assurance that God will rescue him and deliver him safely to his heavenly kingdom. And that's the comfort that Paul has in verse 18. When it would have been so easy to cry, woe is me, give up in despair or in fear, Paul rests in the presence of God and in the future hope that he has because of his Savior, Jesus Christ. And what an encouragement we should take from these verses. Even in the midst of the greatest trial, God is always a present reality. He is with us. When others abandon us, God never does. When others let us down, God never does. But he will take us safely to that inheritance that awaits us in that heavenly kingdom. That is his promise. The God who never lies. That is his promise to us. Yet I think there's other things that these closing verses do, and particularly for Timothy himself. That is, they illustrate everything that Paul has been saying in this letter. All the lessons that Paul has been driving home at Timothy are actually highlighted in these last few verses. Paul not being ashamed of the gospel, even testifying before high officials who had the authority literally to end his life. He wasn't ashamed of it even there. Paul suffered all the hardships that come from his ministry. He was now in prison. He was nearing the close of his, of his life. He had faithfully run the race to the very last. Just as he called Timothy to. Paul had suffered the opposition of false teachers in his ministry. Those who actively opposed his gospel. He mentions in particular this person called Alexander. Literally the coppersmith. Uh, in particular in verse 14 and 15. Warning Timothy about him as well. Paul was no stranger to opposition. Who this Alexander is, we can't say with any certainty. Although Paul does mention in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20, an Alexander, whom he handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Can't be sure that it's the same person or not, but it's an interesting link. But whoever he is, Paul uses a very interesting word in the Greek to describe what he did. That word in Greek has, is used in legal connotations for being informed upon, an informer. So the harm that this Alexander has done to Paul could refer to the fact that he, he was the one who informed on him and made a complaint about, to the authorities regarding what Paul preached. So Paul knew something of the disappointments. Just like Timothy had been experiencing the disappointments in Ephesus. Paul knew all what goes, it all went along with gospel work. Demas, I'm sure, was a very real and very present hurt and discouragement to Paul. It may well have been part of the reason why Paul decided to write this letter, to plead with Timothy, don't do what Demas has done, stay with it. It shouldn't surprise Timothy that there are those who profess the faith and yet later end up running away from it. 
Yet it doesn't prevent it being very painful for the church, for the leaders in particular, when people who they've worked with, spent time with, trained, end up discouraging them, disappointing them. That's the way it goes sometimes. Paul has also experienced the loneliness, the feelings of failure, I'm sure, with so many deserting the gospel due to the various pressures, nobody willing to stand at his defense and at his trial. You see, many of these details give illustration to exactly the points that Paul has been hammering home to Timothy to remind him about. Ministry is hard work. It is long work. There will be many challenges, hardships, disappointments. There will be times of loneliness and times of suffering. There will be times when all you want to do is run away. But there then there are the real encouragements. Even when Paul was alone in his trial, he had the assurance of God's presence. That same presence that gave him strength to proclaim the message. The same presence that Timothy enjoyed through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Paul had told him in chapter 1. Timothy was to fan into flame this gift of God, the Holy Spirit, that that would give him power to keep going, to keep suffering for the sake of the gospel. To not be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul Apostle. And not only this, Paul had the assurance that God would finally rescue him and bring him safely to that heavenly kingdom. That same promise was for Timothy. Even if he lost his life, there was no power that could take away that inheritance in glory. Timothy could receive that crown of righteousness that the righteous judge would award all who long for his appearing on that last day. If Timothy keeps going... God has sustained Paul through all that he has experienced and would ultimately sustain sustain Timothy and all of us through our various circumstances, trials, and lifetimes of service to bring us safely to that heavenly kingdom. And Paul can't resist at the very thought of it, flowing into, into praise and doxology, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul finishes with greetings to old friends that he had known for many years in Ephesus. Again, examples of those who had remained faithful through it all. Priscilla and Aquila, whom he first met in Corinth, Acts chapter 18. They had been co-workers with Paul, traveled with him. They had been the ones who had helped Apollos, remember, to understand the scriptures more fully. And after all the years, Paul still remembers them. He greets the household of Onesiphorus, whom he mentions in chapter 1, verse 16. He used him there as an example to Timothy of faithfulness when others were deserting. Paul wants to greet his household because Onesiphorus... In his own words, you know very well how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. He was an example of great faithfulness. Erastus and Trumphimus, who also were fellow workers with Paul, well thought of by Paul, uh, he mentions them to Timothy before making his plea again that Timothy should come before winter. 
Three times in this letter, Paul has spoken of of seeing Timothy, of wanting to see him. In chapter 1, he longs to see him that he may be filled with joy. In the final chapters, he tells him, come quickly. And now he tells him, come before winter sets in. Come before he might be prevented from traveling or caught up in some way. Not to mention that Paul wants that cloak to keep him warm and those scrolls so he can continue to work. And finally, Paul sends greetings from what must have been church members in Rome. So that Timothy, again, would remember that he is not alone. There are members in the church who are looking forward to seeing him. Who no doubt would pray for Timothy and his ministry regularly. In many ways, these greetings highlight the need there is for good friendships. Friendships which last. Friendships which, when the dark moments come in the long race of faith, those friendships that can stand the test are a constant source for us of encouragement and of help. As Paul, I'm sure, was for Timothy, and as Timothy certainly was for Paul, it was a great encouragement to have that friendship in his last moments. Paul ends with a double benediction, praying firstly that the Lord would be with Timothy's spirit. I think this is a prayer for Timothy to have the presence of the Lord Jesus with him. And finally, he speaks to the whole church. Again, remember that at the very last, this you at the last is plural. It's still the whole church. He says, grace be with you. Those are the last words of the Apostle Paul that we have. And I couldn't think of anything more appropriate for him to say. That grace that he has proclaimed and experienced. That grace that was given to him and us in Christ Jesus before the very beginning of time that he spoke about in chapter 1. Which has been his constant meditation throughout this letter, throughout all his letters. That grace that saved him. That grace that would see him home to his heavenly kingdom. This letter was for the whole church in Ephesus. It's for us today as well. So we can rejoice in that same grace that we have been given as we receive this gospel. So we can rejoice in that grace which equips us to do the work that God has called us to do. And we can rejoice in that grace which will also see us home. Sustain us in the long race that is ahead and see us faithfully to that crown of righteousness that will be awarded to us on that day. In many ways, I think this letter shows us the very heart of the Apostle Paul. His desires, his hopes, his sufferings, all for the sake of remaining faithful to the Christ who loved him and gave himself for him. And I hope, I really do hope, as we've studied it together, that it will help us, that it will help us here in 21st century Dundee to see something of the priorities that Paul lays out for the church and the work of the gospel. Something of the pressures that that brings on us all, and particularly on the leadership. And in many ways, I hope that it will help you, that it will help you in your ministry, whatever God has called you to, To serve faithfully and unashamedly, as Timothy was called to, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ.
and to run the race and to keep the faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for these last words of Paul. We thank you that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that they have been given to us as scripture. That they are useful, Lord, as such, for teaching us, for correcting, for rebuking, and for training in righteousness. And how we thank you for their encouragement to us. The example that the apostle leaves of total faithfulness to the message of the gospel and to service to his Lord and Master. We pray that you will help us take to heart all the lessons that we have learned from this letter, the priorities that we must have in terms of gospel ministry in our age, in the age you have called us to. Help us to remain faithful to the gospel, to faithfully seek to hand it on to those who come after us, to guard it from error, to make sure, Lord, that we preach it, we proclaim it, even when people aren't willing to hear it. And above all, Father, we thank you for the encouragement of the grace that we have received in the gospel. The grace that says and tells us and promises us your presence with us throughout it all, which equips us for the service you've called us to, and which gives us that assurance of that heavenly kingdom. Help us to run the race with perseverance, to look to Jesus, that author and perfecter of our faith, and to rest assured in the grace we have received. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.